Hey everyone, how's it going and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and joining me now, you might recognize this name from a recent episode where we talked about his new book, The Exorcist House. It's a truly terrifying tale and he is back, folks. Author Nick Roberts joins us to talk about his soon-to-be-released collection of horror shorts, It Haunts the Mind and Other Stories, out June 16th through our good friends at Crystal Lake Publishing. Nick, welcome back. It's good to have you here. It's so good to be back. I had a blast last time. All right. Well, I will do my best to not disappoint a second time around. Uh, So I want to begin by talking about the cover for this book, because having read some of it, having seen the cover, the cover is downright horrifying, dude. Where did this one come from? So uh, the cover artist is Matt Seth Barnes. He is also the artist who did The Exorcist House. And, you know, I'm convinced that, you know, at least half of the people in a bookstore or scrolling through Amazon who saw the cover of The Exorcist House were drawn to it because of that cover. And then hopefully they got into into the synopsis and, and enjoyed the story. But it's a striking cover. So... You know, if, if you if you did well the first time, I, I like to stay loyal, and I, I wanted to work with him again. And um, I reached out to him, and I, I told him, you know, my my initial thoughts. I didn't ever, you know, I don't ever want to tell an artist, hey, do this, this, and this for me, and you know, just basically fill in the blanks. But I was, I, I had a vision in my mind, and you know, like kind of like a similar. Um, to the movie poster of like Darren Aronofsky's mother or like Midsommar by Ari Oster, the, uh, you know, a close up of a woman's face, but there's just something not right. And that's pretty much all the direction I gave him. And, um, you know, he sent me a work in progress. I gave him feedback. He tweaked it a little bit and it's that back and forth, um, collaboration where we finally ended up right where we're, where where we are and i mean it came down to which way the smoke coming out of the cross blows <laughs> so um like he i mean he, to his credit he put up with such, all of my nitpicky stuff at the end and you know it's both of our goals to be uh to have the best cover possible um so yeah matt matt came up with that and i'm thrilled with it i love it uh, and you know it, People seem to enjoy it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because they always say don't judge a book by its cover, but you're right. The cover is like the selling point. I've There's been plenty of times where I've sort of passed on books because they have a bland and boring cover. And others I picked yeah. up because the cover looks so cool. I thought, you know what? I'm not sure what this is about, but I want to read it now just from the cover art alone. Yeah, especially in the age of so many indie authors. And you know, there's so many authors out there. You don't know the name. You don't need to see Stephen King's cover to buy a Stephen King book. Um, you judge movies by their covers. You know, whenever I used to roam the halls of Blockbuster and look at those awesome horror movie VHSs and DVDs, I judged those covers. So cover art is is definitely not meant to be taken for granted. And I think that old adage, don't judge a book by its cover, is more, you know, applies to humans rather than physical books. Yeah, actually. exactly. 
it's funny, like you mentioned the blockbuster, man, that has taken me back because I was the same way. I would like walk through the horror section and this is, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid of the 80s. So for me, it was like, you know, uh, Freddy and Jason, uh, Critters, oh, yeah. um, Little Shop of Horrors. I'm not thinking of the more like covers that, that kind of stuck with me over the years. But Ghoulies. Ghoulies, yeah. Ghoulies, Trolls. Um, uh, yes. I think it was the first Reanimator. I mean, all, oh, these, yeah. all these just like classic horror movie covers and i'd be like oh what's this oh what's that oh what's this so yeah man i'm right there with you you know blockbuster you know you get to your favorite movie and you hope that behind it is the actual tape that you can borrow Mm-hmm. yeah there was nothing more devastating than going on a friday night for that movie that you had to have and they're all gone and then sometimes you'd strike gold by going up to the front desk and say, hey, can you check the Dropbox and see if this movie's there? And now we're just completely alienating half of your young audience by being old farts. I know, right? (laughs) Trust (laughs) us, kids. It was a really awesome time. I know these days get used to the streaming stuff, but there was a time when you couldn't just click little buttons and get something. You actually had to do the work, drive out there and look for it, and maybe ask the staff and say, hey, do you have this thing? Just appreciate what you got, kids, because it could be a lot different. How are you, though, when it comes to choosing something on the cover? Are you the kind of person that a cover is enough to sell you on it? Or are, are you always a type to say, you know what, I want to actually check something out before I say yes to this thing? Sometimes if a cover is too over the top, too explicit, too graphic, it can turn me off um, because I'm more of the... Not to say that I don't love extreme horror, but I'm more into the subtle, creepy, almost classy type of dread that can lure you in. And then once you're in there, shock the hell out of you with the gruesome and the scary and the horror that you'd see. To me, it's like you're taking all of the kill scenes from the movie and putting it on the cover. You know, you, you, you wouldn't do that. But like, um, it, it, it. I've gotten to know a lot of horror authors and there are certain authors who only hire um, artists who will paint original artwork for their books. And that's great. And, um, you know, some of the artwork took me aback at first until I started reading the work. And then I realized, yes, I was judging a book by its cover because um, you know, I was I, I was putting the book at the bottom of the to be read list because I didn't maybe think the author was taking the work seriously by throwing out a cover, or maybe it was too campy or too hammy because of of, of it. Um, but like you know, the classic Stephen King covers are like the epitome of what I consider to be great covers. Mm-hmm. They're they're scary. Um, You can tell there's something menacing about them going on, but they don't have to have like a ton of in your face, uh, you know, graphic violence and all that. Those are in the pages. Mm, Exactly. Exactly. My feeling is if it's good enough that you could, uh, that you would want to print it out and make a, make a poster of it. It's very likely worth a read. And I've come across some books where, I have seen the covers. I think, you know what? I want to make this into into a poster and frame it because it looks that awesome. Right. I think my favorite cover of all time is the original cover for The Exorcist. Mm. It's just it's just the girl's blurry face. It's so out of focus. And you know, your mind fills in 
the imagine you know fills in the blanks of of you know why can't I really focus on her eyes? What's wrong with this girl's face? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that was on my first novel, Anathema. That's the that's the cover that I sent um, Michael Fish uh, Fisher, who uh, did that cover. And I said, you know, I want because you know the the antagonist that Anathema is a, is a young woman. And I said I want a creepy, subtle, scary, unsettling image. But not like insanely graphic, not too detailed. I don't like it when it looks too clean. I'm kind of like Rob Zombie in that way. I like it to be grainy and you know out of out of focus a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, he when he made that anathema cover, he originally sent me. I mean, if 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 you haven't seen the cover, it's a woman with her arm extended outward, and it's almost 3D, like she's reaching out of the page. But her face is all blurred out. You can't see anything but like long dark hair, and it's it's exactly what I wanted. Um, but yeah, so um, with uh, working with um, it haunts the mind. This most recent one, um, the some of the original covers that Matt sent me had a crystal clear face on it on the girl, and he said. I said, is there any way you can, you know, like make this not as clean and, you know, I love it, but like tweak it, blur it, make it a little uncanny to the eye, to the human eye. Like there's something wrong with it. He said, yeah, let me, let me go in and do some digital brush strokes real quick. And within like an hour, he sent me back this picture where like just by subtly doing little brush strokes across the lips, the eye, the face, it just distorted the image enough to make the human eye like trick you into thinking there's just something not right about this. Exactly. And that's what, that's the effect that that's the effect I was going for just, and I think they call that the uncanny. And I think, you know, Stanley Kubrick is the master of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we could spend the whole episode, I think talking about book covers, but you know what? I think we should probably get into the stories because that's what this is all about here. Of course, we have a collection of 15 horror stories. It kicks off with Sally under the bed. And holy shit, dude, that one scared the living hell out of me. Like that story Thank just you. really scared the crap out of me. There's a part of the end. Um, I won't spoil anything. We'll give anything away. But there's a part that I kind of skipped it like near the end. because I was like, nope, nope. I know what's going to happen here. I'm not doing this myself. No way. When it comes to opening this collection, though, did you go back and forth on what you want to start with? No, not not with the opener. I knew I wanted Sally Under the Bed as the opener because I'm mostly known as the creepy, scary horror author more so than like graphic horror or like violence. So I wanted something that fit in the same uh, vein as Anathema and the Exorcist House, just so I could have buy-in from fans of my other work. Now, I kind of go all over the place with the rest of the stories. I mean, there there are five stories in there that are not horror and the tradition they're not traditionally a horror genre, but those were the earliest stories that I wrote and I submitted them to uh quote unquote literary publications back in the day and you know, they dealt with heavy themes like addiction and trauma and and grief and vengeance and uh, you know i sent those out and these these magazines just ate them up they they loved them and when they found out you know my personal story of recovery 
they were all about, you know, including my author bio and, you know, having these stories. And, um, you know, I think that helps sell those early stories. But having said all that, those those quote unquote non-horror stories in my mind are the most horrific because they feature some of the most uncomfortable, disturbing scenes in, in the collection. Now I tried to balance it out by having, you know, opening up with Sally and then throwing in, if I'm not mistaken, the deal, maybe the second one. Um, okay. So the deal, that's the first story I ever had published. Um, I went to school um, with the, uh, I majored in English, and there was only one other male in the English department whenever I was an undergrad. And he's a Marine, and he and I bonded. And um, he eventually went to grad school down south and became um, kind of an acquisitions editor for a literary magazine. And we reconnected when he was in his master's program. I was in mine. He said, you know, I know you like to write fiction. I have a fiction magazine and I'm, you know, trying to get some unique voices. If you have something, send it to me. It's not an automatic buy-in. You're not going to go straight into the magazine. If it sucks, I'm going to tell you it sucks. And believe me, he's a Marine. He does not hold back on his, on his feedback. So I thought, I thought of the deal and you know it's semi autobiographical because whenever I was struggling with addiction in my you know late teens, early twenties, I literally had this idea. I said, you know what? I think the only thing that could cure me of not being a drug addict is if I hired a hitman to come back and kill me in five years if I didn't change my ways, if I didn't go to college, if I didn't find a girlfriend, if I didn't achieve happiness. And that was a that was a real thought that I had. Um not that it was plausible or that I would ever act on it, but it was an idea. So, you know, when I got clean and sober and, you know, went back to school and had to come up with something to write with, I realized that I still had this creative drive in me. And now I had some pretty interesting lived experience. And I took that notion, that idea for the deal and uh, fleshed it out as a short story. It's one of the shorter stories in the collection. And I sent it to my friend and he, um, responded and said, Hey, love it. Um, we're going to, we're going to publish it. And that, that was my first publishing credit and seeing my name in print in a magazine, um, uh, that kind of spawned a whole new addiction. Now, um, I, I, I published several other short stories, um, after that, that weren't horror related. And I also wasn't getting paid for them. I was, I was, I was, getting that ever uh that 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 concept of exposure <laughs> you know which is you know good and bad you know it's it's great to have a story published and accumulate some publishing credits because when you submit a story to a paying market and they see that yeah you've had some stories published that's where exposure is good um on the other hand you know, throw a struggling author a bone. Even a nominal fee of five bucks for a story makes you feel like you're Stephen King. Um, so, um, but yeah, anyway, so I, in balancing out the, the collection, started with Sally, and then I kind of weaved in and out of the non-horror. And in my mind, the sec, the, I think Sally's the scariest story, 
but I think Grandma Ruth is the most disturbing. And I tried to, I, I don't know exactly where that is in the collection, maybe toward the middle or the back half. But I think, uh, I, I think I'm going to catch some people off guard with that one, especially after reading some of the non-horror stuff and then jumping into Grandma Ruth. And then, you know, you have some fun, more, um, you know, not not as serious in, in theme and tone stories like, um, you know, the Halfway House is kind of a thriller. And then you've got the Paperboy. It's kind of a, a coming of age monster story. And the, the title story, It Haunts the Mind, is a direct quote from The Exorcist House. So that story takes place within the Exorcist House universe. And um, people who aren't familiar with my book, The Exorcist House, in the prologue, it opens up with an exorcist at his house who meets his fate. He, uh, you know, he, he perishes. It's not a spoiler. It's literally in the synopsis. It's the prologue. And then a new family moves in months later after they renovate the house. So I thought, you know, a lot of time, there's a, there's a window of time before this exorcist dies and, you know, before the family moves in. What if some rambunctious young teens decide to go partying one night at this weird little house that they've heard these local legends about? I could bring back some characters. And, you know, so I got excited about that. So I saved that one for, for last. That's my closing. That's the knockout punch. And that's the most recent story that I've written. I love that you got the chance to sort of touch back on your previous book, The Exorcist House, with this one. That, that's, that's, like, really nice. When you have the... Uh, I was told it's the best-selling book for Crystal Lake Publishing to date. So when you have that, it would be, you know, my business mindset automatically kicks in. And I'm like, I got to have a story set in the Exorcist House universe. And that's my marketing campaign for this collection. And hopefully I'll lure them in with that. And then they'll uh, uh, they'll get scared by some other stuff and see a range, hopefully, of, you know, emotional stories, uncomfortable stories. Heck, there's even sort of a love story in there, so it's a it's a bit all over the place. Mm. I really I really like the deal uh, you mentioned that in this story we have a young man struggling with addiction. He actually pays a hitman thirty grand to say, in five years, if I'm not this 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 and this, put a bullet in my head because it's the only thing that's going to actually stop me from just continuing this spiral downwards. That one was powerful and um, definitely curious to see the other like non-horror stories because what I've seen from your writing is you definitely know how to pack a punch, especially from an emotional level. And um, you, you had mentioned your own, um, your own battles with addiction. Is this a frequent topic in your other, in your other stories? In the stories in that collection, yeah. So the through line through the entire collection, I wouldn't say is necessarily addiction. I would take a step back and say it's each story focuses on some sort of obsession. Yes, there are five that explicitly deal with addiction. Then there are several more that more deal with a character that can't get over something or something that's been haunting them. And uh, they're obsessed with overcoming it. 
and uh you know it's uh it's that's the that was how i sold myself on releasing this as a collection and not just a hodgepodge of stories i've amassed over the last few years i did not want to do that um so when i when i actually sat down and looked at all the short stories i had i put them all in one word document and i read through them all made a few minor tweaks and uh, here and there to grammar and stuff like that but i realized as i read you know one from the next one even the the saddest non-horror story really still has a lot to do with you know sally under the bed you know you have this in sally you have this obsessive true crime almost um reporter uh hell-bent on uncovering this urban legend which is the same kind of addictive drive that some of these other characters in these stories have with literal drugs so yeah yeah that story really got to me too for a lot of reasons but i work as a journalist that's my day job so reading about this person I'm like yeah i am feeling very seen with a story it's like this is kind of my life did you did you come across anything that seemed uh inauthentic in the journal journalism world oh oh okay all right um i would say and you know i don't know every aspect of the journalism world so i don't want to put anything out there that I'm going to say as a hard and fast cardinal rule. But when she paid the person for the interview, that's something journalists, most journalists in my experience and that I've met wouldn't do because it can influence a story sometimes in a negative way. If you're paying someone, you know, -hmm. know, as opposed to them and them just being wanting to talk to you on the record, no strings attached. If you're saying, you know what, I'm going to pay you 400 bucks for your story. To me, that right. that does kind of change things and not always in the best ways because you do hear about some news organizations will say, you know what, I'll pay you $10,000 to, you know, tell me your story. It's like, okay, well, then I'm going to tell you the story you want to hear, basically, because you're paying me this this much money. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would, I would say that to that point, hmm? that that is her obsession to the fact that she's completely lost sight of journalistic integrity to the Mm. fact that she's like i want to uncover this so bad just take my money tell me what i want to hear i have to get to the bottom of this legend yeah but yeah but but you know otherwise on point everything else like the like you said the obsessive nature the obsessive research the like hey honey i'm back i gotta go i gotta go work now you know just spending hours upon hours yes that is very much in line the coffee addiction definitely is very much in line with how like the journalist mindset works, especially when you have a story that really that we think is going to make our career. There's definitely that yeah. obsessive nature because you want to be the ones to get that Pulitzer or that whatever. So yeah. Right. So no, so I, I, I think you were very book off my, snagged a book off my bookshelf. Have you read I'll be gone in the dark? I have not. McNamara. Nope. You're familiar with Patton Oswalt, yes. the comedian. Yep. So this this is his late wife. So she wrote oh. this book. She wrote this book chasing the uh, the Golden State Killer. She was basically like an armchair sleuth. And this is and you see it as as you read through it, you see her go into this obsession because she starts getting real leads, and she 
she, I mean, she un, unfortunately she um, was taking like stimulants to stay up at night and write, and would take uh, you know depressants to go to sleep, and had an unintentional overdose and passed away before she could finish the book. So uh, Patton Oswald and uh, and another um, another author kind of gathered her notes and put it together and put this book out there, and it even became an HBO documentary. But that's sort of who this character is based on is Michelle McNamara, that, that drive of hers. And also the fact that I love urban legends like Candyman and Bloody Mary, and I wanted to create my own. And it's funny because I was, I was, I was sitting in my car outside of a, it was like a CVS or something. And I knew that I was going, I had to write a short, I was going to go home and write a short story. And the title Sally under the bed just popped in my head. Like I was seeing a sign with those words written on it. And I said, that's just a creepy ass title. And then I sat there in, in my car and just typed out the poem in about 10 minutes. And, um, you know, I had the rhyme scheme in my head and I sent it to my mom (laughs) and I sent it to my sister. And I said, what do you think of this? And they're like, that's creepy. I'm like, okay, okay. So I had, <laughs> like, I nailed had it. Po- <laughs> I had the poem first. And then now I had to f- figure a story out around it. And that's when I kind of brought in the uh, intrepid reporter character. And then it was nice being a native West Virginian to bring in some Hatfield and McCoy type stuff too. Yeah, I want to ask about that, too, because in the stories I've read, they've all been kind of set in the same general area, which is, as you mentioned, uh, West Virginia, the Appalachians area. Uh, yeah. Why Why do that? I like chamber pieces in the fact that I like stories set in one place. As you can tell, both of my previous novels are basically they just take place in a, in a house. Um, there are scenes where they leave the house, but... Setting my stories in in um, you know, West Virginia, it's just it it's rife with uh, ghost history, and um, I drive a lot. Oh, I used to drive a lot through the through like Fayetteville, West Virginia, and that's like where you really see the rolling mountains, and you see the the, the peaks and valleys and the fog, and it just looks spooky and it looks otherworldly. And honestly, I'm kind of tired of seeing the only depictions of West Virginians being in the movie Wrong Turn. And, you know, <laughs> uh, I mean, we've certainly warranted certain aspects to that reputation. Don't get me wrong. But I, I also, you know, it's where I grew up. It, it's the area I know. And it's it's isolated as well. You know, that's a key part, I think, in horror is an isolated setting. It, it's, it, it makes it easier for me, at least, you know, putting people in the overlook hotel isolated by a snowstorm is, makes it easy for Stephen King to have his characters go slowly insane in the shining. So I just, I, I enjoy the area. I enjoyed the descriptive language involved with, with the, you know, the scenery, but, um, I have this, I mean, even this third novel that I just signed is it takes place in West Virginia. 
the uh, the sequel to the Exorcist House that I signed a deal for. It's obviously it'll take place there, but it it also is more epic in scope. It's by far my most ambitious project yet. But in my short works, I want to take some risks. Um, there's a story in in this collection called The Noose, and I had no interest in writing um, horror westerns. Not that I don't like wasn't interested. I love westerns. I love horror. I just don't see how the two would be combat compatible. So I, I read a few horror westerns, especially Joe Lansdale, and I loved it. And I, I said, you know, I, I'm going to put this as a challenge to myself that, um, you know, if I want to say something doesn't work, I'm going to put up or shut up. I'm going to offer my contribution to it. So the noose was my stab at a horror Western. And um, it does not take place in West Virginia. I had to do my research. I had to look up, uh, you know, eight, I think it's 1875 Arizona Territory had to print out all these maps of what the terrain looked like. And, you know, I put so much work into that to get the details right, because, you know, I, I want the, the Western guys to, to read it. And uh, when I sent that story off to my Marine buddy proofreader, um, <laughs> first thing he said, like he, he read the first page and then sent me an email back and was like, you sound like you're trying to write a Western. You literally have somebody calling someone yellow. He said, go read, go read some Cormac McCarthy and, and get your voice back. Don't try to write a Western, write a scary ass story set in the West. And I said, touche. And I went and read the opening to No Country for Old Men, which I love Cormac McCarthy. And um, I sat down, I wrote the news and it's, it's one of the, ones i'm 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 quite proud of and uh, i could see myself um diving more into that world especially with that character mm. do you see any of these other books getting an expansion either into more short stories or maybe even a full novel well the uh the title story it haunts the mind it's it's already tied into the exorcist house universe the uh, the ones that are not horror that are you know themed around addiction and grief and loss i feel like i hit my gut punch with those particularly the weeping wind that's it once you get to that story that's 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 a real that's a real kick to the groin and um so is thanks for sharing and you know what i love about these short stories is, um, you know, Stephen King, Paul Tremblay, they all write like notes at the end of the collection. And I like to read the short story and then flip back to the notes at the end and read the notes on the short story to give me extra insight into the story. And I don't know if you've done that or not, but if you read the story, thanks for sharing. And then you go and read the notes behind that story. It's uh, that one was a tough one to revisit. Um, I don't want to give away the ending, um, but I, I recommend it to the listeners to uh, to to experience this collection that way. Read the story, jump to the note. Read the next story, jump to the next note. But as far as expanding any of them into a full fledged novel, 
I don't have it, uh, a desire or a drive for it right now. Um, but I, I, I do want to, like, the next thing I want to jump into after The Exorcist House um, Genesis, which is the title of the sequel slash prequel, is something completely different. And I'm, I'm I'm very interested in cosmic horror. I've been reading a lot of cosmic horror lately, and I just might uh, get lost in that world on on the next one. Mm. I was thinking if any of these things could be expanded. I think the deal actually has a potential to be, you know, a novel or a Netflix series or a movie or something because, like, it's I think it's almost like like a five or six pages long, so it's a fairly short story. But yes. there's so much in that universe where, you know, this guy goes to the to the hired gun and says, you know, come back in five years. And, you know, if I'm still strung out on, on, on dope, just shoot me in the head and put me on my misery. Right. But there's so much that happens in that five years as we, as we see towards, towards, towards the end. I feel like, man, it, like, it's almost this, like, super condensed universe here. And there's so much where we could do with it. So that's just my opinion in the end. Just my opinion. But I would say it's that could be, you know, a good thing to build upon and sort of flush out, and who knows what what could happen with it. Yeah, and I I would definitely be interested in fleshing out the quote unquote low rent hitman that he hires because I think he's such a complex character, mm-hmm. especially at the end. And I like his uh, his pathos and the way you know his his whole belief system, but um. What I would ultimately love to do is to have written this short story and then inspire someone else to take the reins and, and flesh it out. You know, like Stephen King wrote the Boogeyman short story 40, 30 years ago, and we're, we're just now getting a feature-length movie out of it. And you know, I'd, I'd love and be flattered to see someone fill in the blanks and flesh out any, any of these stories. Mm. Okay. Did you have a lot of stories that didn't make the final cut for this collection? I had about six or seven other stories that I had written that were committed to other publications. And which is kind of fortunate that they were because they didn't necessarily fit. Well, except one of them. They didn't necessarily fit with the theme of obsession. They what they're great in my mind. They're great stories. They're they're um, more recent stories. I feel like I've you know gotten a little bit better at you know my my, my pacing and my style. But um, yeah, it would have been that hodgepodge thing where I would have just shoehorned it in there just to have another kick-ass story rather than a thematically condensed album almost. Like, uh, I kind of look at it like a record album. Like, you're going to have a hard rock song and then a ballad and then come in with another, you know, master of puppets. One thing I was curious about is the order of the stories. Do they follow a certain path or is it more just like, okay, we have our beginning story, we have our end story, and the rest can just kind of go where they go? That's where I started. I knew I wanted Sally first. I knew I wanted It Haunts the Mind last because of... I've been I always thought that, you know, if my story got accepted into a, an anthology, being the first story would be the ultimate spot because that would 
deter someone or encourage someone to keep on reading. And, and apparently in the literary world, it's the final story that's the coveted spot. So I I threw It Haunts the Mind last. I wanted Sally Under the Bed to be the hook. And then I played around with the order of the non-horror stories with the really disturbing horror stories with the action-packed. There are two really action-packed horror stories. The, um, you know, there's one um, called The Bitter End. And, you know, this one, it's super violent. It's not scary. It's almost breaking bad in tone. And, you know, I loved it, but I shopped it around. It was one of my earlier ones. I shopped it around forever and just I couldn't find a, a home for it. And then um, and then finally I ended up I ended up finding a place for it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that story because it, it's more of a character study than a plot driven narrative. It's more of like taxi driver than. um you know, uh, a horror story, but you know, um, <laughs> if this tells you anything, my working title that I never intended to keep was, uh, the, uh, pawn shop massacre. So <laughs> <laughs> I knew, I, I knew I wasn't going to sell it to any, any, you know, literary magazines with the pawn shop massacre title. So the bitter end kind of came up, sounds a little more respectable. And it fits with uh, with the the character who's a recovering or trying to be a recovering alcoholic. And there's a quote from an Alcoholics Anonymous book where it talks about you either stop drinking or you drink until the bitter end. So that's where I took that from. Okay. Um, as you mentioned earlier, some of these stories you've had for a long time they've been they've been published in in other places too. And you also talked about some tweaks that that you made, but did any of these stories get like a major rewrite prior to this collection coming out? No, I, I felt I felt like that would be disingenuous, and I, I honestly I was curious to see, especially putting them out of order, if people could tell which ones were written first and which ones were were, were more recent, because in my mind. You know, the more you write, the better you get. Well, that's not always the case. You know, you can knock out a, a good, a, a great idea right out of the park. Sure, it may not be a polished piece of writing, but the idea, the character, the story resonates. And um, so I was curious to see who would latch on to what. I'm fully prepared for the people who say, oh, this story sucked, but this one was great. And, you know, this one sucked, but that one was great. There's going to be a lot of a lot of that. But as long as people are reading it and talking about it and, you know, which it, that's fine with me. And I just checked the numbers um, before I got on the podcast. And, you know, it does. But its official release date is June 16th. Um, but the uh, the paperback and the hardback were supposed to go on pre-sale on Amazon and be released June 16th. Well, on June 4th, June 3rd, as soon as those uh, pre-sales went up there, 
they started getting shipped out. So there are lots of people who have hardbacks, who have paperbacks, who are reading the story right now and posting it in all these Facebook horror groups. And as of right now, the paperback and the hardback are the number one bestsellers in American horror and technically haven't been released yet. So <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm looking forward to... I feel bad for the people who pre-ordered the ebook and have to wait until the 16th <laughs> to get it. But, well, uh, uh, well, hey, it's good that you're hitting this. It's good that you're uh, hitting this ranking so so fast. Um, has that ever happened to you before? Where you've gotten this like number one spot? Yes. Well, it it took a while with the Exorcist House. Okay. It took it, it built momentum because I, I had anathema. No one read Anathema. It wasn't put out by a major publisher. And then the publisher that did put it out, they had to collapse because of COVID early in 2021. All the rights reverted back to me. So I had to, um, I re-released it as a second edition after doing some substantial formatting and editing to it. And, um, you know, that's the version that's out there now. But I didn't have any kind of following whatsoever. When I when uh, Joe at Crystal Lake bought the Exorcist house, and it it wasn't until Matt really designed that cover, and Crystal Lake put a Facebook and Twitter post with that cover and the synopsis that I wrote, that I started seeing comments like "Take my money," you know, this isn't this is too long to wait. I want to read it right now, and I didn't. I underestimated how many people love the possession genre. You know, myself included. The Exorcist is my favorite horror movie. And, um, but I, at the same time, I didn't want to do like a retread ripoff of The Exorcist. So I had to put my own little spin on it. And, um, what actually blew it up was I did a podcast with fellow author John Durgan. He doesn't even do the podcast anymore, but that podcast connected us and we, you know, talked on Facebook and have maintained a friendship ever since. And he said back in 2022, he said, you need to be a part of this Facebook group called Books of Horror. He said there's like 35,000 people in it and I've seen books go viral and become bestsellers for these indie authors. And I think yours has the potential. You should get it in there and, you know, see if people start talking about it. And that's what I did. And it just took off. It took off on TikTok. It took off on um, Instagram, on Facebook. And, um, you know, I kind of owe all this success to John just for that recommendation of getting in that Facebook group. But, um, yeah, it took it did take a few months, but it hit number one. And in the U.S. for uh, for horror, and you know it's maintained its sales since it came out last May. You know it's still consistently brought up. They're doing this indie author brawl, which is kind of like a March Madness for horror novels in this Facebook group called Books of Horror. And the way they picked the books that were going to be in the tournament was they had readers and. Um, well, I, they had the authors who wanted to 
you know, voluntarily be in this tournament because they didn't want to have like authors who didn't want to be in it and then get their feelings hurt or whatever. If you wanted to participate, you could. So I, I threw out the exorcist house and it was this long Facebook thread of authors throwing out their books and whoever had the most vo uh, votes determined what seed you got in the tournament. And when they finally released the bracket, you know, there were 150 some books that were submitted. They chose 32 for the bracket and the exorcist house was the number one seed. And it blew me away. And, um, you know, they're going to start this tournament coming up in September, but it's, it, it's really cool because it's, um, shining a light on these, on a lot of indie authors and it's given these readers in this group time to read the books before September. So it's been so awesome seeing people who, uh, you know, it's their first novel and no one knew anything about them. And now because they're in this 32 section or 32 person tournament, people are reading their books and talking about them and, you know, all the, all kinds of authors are blowing up right now. And it's, it, it's, it's awesome. There's, there's enough re readers for everybody. Yeah, and that is so cool though that you've that, that that you've hit all these like career highs basically. You know that that you've had all this all this uh, success. Um, a bit of an odd question, but did you ever think this would that that, that your career would ever hit this point that you'd be getting like you know the, these like the number one spots and your books going going viral? No, I anticipated my family buying my books and you know me me buying some author copies at cost from the publisher and selling them locally and you know doing that kind of thing and i wasn't writing thinking i was going to strike it big i've just i've been writing since i was in first grade i just love to tell stories and if i don't write i get backed up and irritable so you know i would i'd be doing this for free and the fact that, and I think that comes through, that passion comes through in the writing because I'm having fun doing it. It's very rare that I sit down and I'm staring at my computer and I'm feeling like dread or like this is a chore or like I have to get through this. Those, those, those do happen. I do have days like that, but it's mostly because my, my three month old has been up all night crying and then I, I can barely keep my eyes open, let alone type of coherent sentence. <laughs> but yeah, the, the fan base that, that I've amassed is, it kind of blows my mind. And it kind of doesn't because I've worked my butt off to engage with my fans. If I have a, if I, you know, go on TikTok or Instagram or uh, Facebook and, and, and comment or put a post and someone puts something like, yeah, this book was great. Or I'll have like a hundred of those comments. I will sit down. I'll pull out my phone. I'll like their comment. I'll respond to that comment. Thank you. And I'll do that with every single person. And, you know, me being a fanboy of other authors, you know, like if I, like I've sent authors that are, you know, high up on the publishing food chain, just random messages on Instagram, just like any other fanboy creep. 
just say, hey, man, I just finished your last book and I loved it. Never expecting to hear like any kind of reply. And then I'll get a reply a couple of days later. Hey, thanks, man. That means a lot to me. So just engaging with fans makes me want to read that author even more. So that's what I really do work hard at maintaining that engagement with my fans and trying to do cool different promotions with them. And, um, you know, so yes, I love the fact that I can release a book, a short story collection, nonetheless, which, you know, those don't typically fly off the shelves. It's the novels that sell. Um, but the fact that I can release a collection and have it go number one, even before it's officially released, it, it's humbling and it's also rewarding. And, you know, because I work my ass off day in and day out to, uh, to do this thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Nick, uh, it's been so cool hearing about this new book, folks. Certainly get yourselves a copy. Turns out it's already available. Or, <laughs> but an unsurprisingly a huge hit. It haunts the mind and other stories available through our friends at Crystal Lake Publishing. And if uh, you want to learn more, uh, you go to nickrobertsauthor.com. You'll find all the information, how to get the books, certainly get The Extras House, get Anathema. These are all great reads. And uh, Nick, man, definitely looking forward to what comes next. All right. So, well, in, in March, I've already uh, finished my next book. It's called Mean Spirited. I sold it to Crystal Lake. So that'll be coming out March 2024. And then The Exorcist House Genesis is September 2024. So it's going to be a mean March and a spooky September and a big 2024 for, uh, for me. Excellent, man. I cannot wait to check him out. Thank you. This is Matches Below, and you're watching Citywide Blackout justice for all and that brings this episode to a close thanks to everyone for listening and be sure to follow the show on facebook at citywide blackout and twitter and instagram at citywide max you can reach me at citywide max at yahoo.com to suggest a guest or submit music for the blackout collection playlist you can find the show wherever you check out your favorite podcasts and new episodes are aired every saturday at 10 p.m est on boston free radio That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.